Welcome to Trashy Divorces, y'all. Hello, sweet trash pandas. I am Stacy. I'm Alicia. If you're here for the first time, welcome. Welcome back. If you're coming back for this week's kind of trashy helping. Latest installment. Of Trashy Divorces and Crashy Divorces. Tasty and... trash candy. Goodness. This week, our theme song is a classic, King of the Road. We're talking about two legendary Hollywood men. Who did you rustle up this week in your magic lasso, Stacey? I rustled up Harrison Ford, who has been married three times, divorced twice. My story was requested by Siobhan, Stephanie, and Jess, which I forgot to say in the telling of the story. So thank you to them. You have sort of like a king of Hollywood. King of Hollywood. Trashy Divorces All-Star, newly minted. Newly minted, Trashy Divorces All-Star, that is correct. And I ain't saying he's a gold digger. (laughs) But he is a Trashy Divorces All-Star, without question. Five marriages, three divorces, and it is so, so trashy, just all of it. Has tragedy, too. It kind of has everything. Really does. It's a hella story. Before we get started with our stories, let's go ahead and give some shout-outs. Let's pull out our magic mirror and see who joined us over on Patreon this week. Absolutely. So thank you very much to Kristen D., Lauren, Roberta N., Cynthia F., Jean R., Lisa, Kim C, and Dorothy B. Sophie B, Gail N, Suzanne, Megan, Kate, Rachel K, Jen K, Heather. Thank Thank you you. so much for your support over there. We also have three new super supporters that we need to give some big thanks and praise to. Donna M, Ariel B, and Courtney B. What did our patron people hear this week? We kicked off the week with my new... Tuesday miniseries, The Wind Done Gone. <laughs> this week we talked about Scarlet Fever, the casting of the role of Scarlett O'Hara and all the twists and turns that Oh, yeah. Took. It was a nationwide movement. So you, much fun. Like, you couldn't think of a better marketing strategy for your in-production film than that. It was very smart. We did a follow-up on Notley Abbey, the thousand-year-old connected to all kinds of spider webs in history and also the marital home of Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier. Ooh, and you had the... Yeah, the original Ocean's 8 with uh, Jeanne de Valois. Boy, she stole a big, big necklace back in France just before the end of the French monarchy, <laughs> and it played a role. Yeah, the affair of the diamond necklace really is mm-hmm. kind of a neat story. Thank you to all of our patrons. Y'all are the very best. We can't tell you how much we appreciate your support. Listeners, thanks everybody for tuning in. Stacy, I don't know how many parsecs we need to go, but you ready to uh, kick this thing off? I think it's time to press the very large important buttons and perhaps we should go, go, go. Oh, Stacy, you have an epic adventure of some trashy divorces today. Yep. This guy's from outer space, <laughs> from archaeology, from Tom Clancy novels. It's Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford has been married three times, which is the same number of Star Wars films in the original set. Hmm. His second divorce from Steven Spielberg whisperer, E.T. screenwriter, and Oscar nominee Melissa Matheson after 17 years together wow. was one of the most expensive ever at the time. Sign your prenups, girls and boys. I kind of joke. Uh, Melissa's career followed a similar timeline to his. She wrote The Black Stallion in 1979, and then E.T. The Extraterrestrial, which was nominated for a Best Original Screenplay Oscar, and won the Saturn Award for Best Writing in 1982. Really? Yeah. So it's really, it's very possible that when these two got together, they were just like, why get a prenup? We're both like super successful, well off. It'll be fine. Whatever. And then the 90s happened for Harrison Ford's career. But, you know, like they'd been married close to a decade at that point. So just saying, they probably didn't think it through very well. But also, they were probably really in love. So, there it is. It doesn't stay that way, I take it. I don't know if they ever really got into hate. Interesting. Um, yeah, these are very private people. They're, they're, this is less trashy than the, the kinds that I love. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself here, though. 
So we're going to go back in time and we're going to see how Han Solo, Indiana Jones, and Melissa Matheson all end up together. Okay. Harrison Ford was born in Chicago on July 13th, 1942, and is a cancer man. Oh, interesting. He was born to a Catholic dad and a Jewish mom, and would later explain that the faith he was raised in was Democrat, which (laughs) seems like a very Chicago in the 40s and 50s thing. That's a great answer. It's a great answer. He was also a Boy Scout and achieved the ranking of Life Scout, which is one under Eagle Scout. And in high school, he fell in with those proto-podcasters, the Student Radio Nerds. Huzzah! Yeah. So he was actually the first student voice that was ever heard on uh, his high school's brand spanking new radio station, WMTH. And in his senior year, he served as the station's first ever sports broadcaster. Fun fact, WMTH is still on the air today providing Maine Township high school students in Ridge Park, Illinois, with a radio station experience from 9 to 5 on weekdays. That is awesome. It's too bad radio stations have largely disappeared as a, I don't know, they were a different thing when I was a kid. Oh, for sure. For sure. All right. After graduating, Harrison Ford headed to Ripon College in Wisconsin, where he studied philosophy. And in his final quarter there, he took an acting class because he worried that his like significant shyness was getting the better of him. He fell in love. He was so excited about acting. So this led to a season of Summerstock Theater in Wisconsin, after which he and his girlfriend and future wife, Mary Markhart, moved to California with the biggest of dreams. Love the big dreams. Love the big dreams. So he would secure, I think he went out to try to get voice parts, and that didn't work out because he's basically, he's a proto-podcaster, radio nerd. He ends up getting a $150 a week contract with Columbia to just do bit parts and whatever's filming. Okay. Like, we need you to... You're an extra. Dress and, up yeah. as a bellhop and take this drink in and say, here you are, sir, and then walk away. Right. <laughs> like, so he did that kind of stuff for quite a while. But having secured this $150 a week in 1964, he and Mary married. Suddenly he's got a good income. Taking off. Things are looking up. The world is so different today. Yeah. Hmm. Remember that shyness thing that got him into acting to overcome in the first place? So one theme that really seems consistent in Harrison Ford's life is just that he is a deeply private person, as are the people closest to him, which is to say that his first wife, as far as I can tell, has not attempted to be a public figure and didn't, after their divorce in 1979, publish a tell-all or like anything like that. Like, just, they had kids together... They continued to raise kids together even after the divorce. I I don't have dirty laundry to air here. It was a graceful letting go of. Yeah, maybe not graceful, but suffice it to say, they had two sons together. And it sounds like as Harrison's star was rising late in the 70s, his eye was wandering. Maybe, maybe both eyes (laughs) were wandering. (laughs) Back to the timeline. So with two sons to care for by the end of the 60s, Harrison also apprenticed as a carpenter, which sort of ended up opening doors in Hollywood for him. In 1973, George Lucas gave him his first real acting break in American Graffiti. And in 1974, Francis Ford Coppola gave him a part in the conversation, as well as kicked him some carpentry work because he was renoing his studio or something at the time. And uh, But apparently he came to be known as... Like a, a really meticulous craftsman. And oh, he did great work. Yeah, he, he was... totally redid the Malibu deck of John Gregory Dunn okay. and Joan Didion's home. Okay. And did he hurt himself on that project? Pretty sure. Okay, yeah, that's... I get to his accident proneness at, at the end. Oh, He's, good. Uh, oh, goody. So, yeah, he kind of was like carpenter to the stars and doing small acting roles, but he like he really wanted the acting thing to take off, although he found the carpentry satisfying. Fun tidbit about how George Lucas cast the original Star Wars in 1976. Normally, like, you have your actors and actresses come in separately and read for a part and then go away. And you you call who you want to come back for a second round or who you're going to hire. He wanted to see how his core crew was going to work together. So he had five Lukes, five Leias, and four Han Solos. Interesting. And then he would sit them down for a group read, like, one of each, change them out. All this stuff, but eventually, like, the only having four Han Solos got to be a problem. 
And again, like he knew Harrison Ford. They he directed him before. And one of Harrison Ford's friends shows up and is like, "Oh, if you need a fifth, like Harrison's not carpentering today. Like, give him a call. Call him up." So this is how he kind of like no way accidentally reads for the Han Solo part. Like as as they're doing this, I guess the chemistry was right with Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher. Fisher and wow, like it just. I guess, oh, that's a hell of a story. Yeah, I guess a lot of directors like Scorsese has his set of actors that he just goes back to again and again. Uh, I think George Lucas didn't want that. So because they'd worked together before, he was hesitant. But anyway, we know how it all worked out. Oh, he's a natural Han Solo. <laughs> it all worked out well. Okay. Somewhat problematically, Harrison, still married to his first wife, had an affair on set with co-star Carrie Fisher for about three months in oh, 1977. No. This was not revealed for 40 years. Yeah, it was undercover. Um, yeah. She describes it in pretty dismal terms in her final memoir, The Princess Diarist, and paints a portrait of a very distant and monosyllabic guy who, for the most part, failed to convey even basic friendliness to her, even as they were sleeping together. But... 19-year-old Carrie was really swept up in imagining 33-year-old Harrison ditching his wife, falling in love with her, it's the being dream. nice. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, he apparently it it's it's bleak. Like I read some excerpts. He it was a pretty bleak thing. Her poetry from that period was it was dim. Okay. Even more problematically, or perhaps just pattern establishing. By the time of the affair with Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford had already met the woman who would become his second wife, Melissa Matheson, back in 76 on the set of Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. Oh, wow. There were rumors that they dated prior to the end of his marriage, but I don't know if that overlapped with his fling with Carrie. For her part, Melissa Matheson had an affair with Francis Ford Coppola during the making of the movie, which... Francis's wife was not very happy about. Hollywood. Lots of Hollywood wow. stuff happening here. As noted, by 1979, Harrison and Mary were in very different places when it came to what they wanted out of life. So they divorced after 15 years of marriage. It sounds like their sons have done very well for themselves and that, the, that they had two very involved parents. Like, I don't know. Like, it sounds like it went about as well as it could. Given not as trashy as, as we have seen. For sure. Yeah. So... By this point, Harrison Ford was both Han Solo and Indiana Jones with a profile so high that it must have been difficult for, again, an extremely private person. In 1983, after a nice long courtship, he married Melissa. She's a Gemini, born June 3rd, 1950. Interesting. Gemini cancer mix. Mm -hmm. And she seems to have shared a, a really similar sensibility about fame with him. Again, she would be a close collaborator with Steven Spielberg until her death in 2015. But it really seems like the community of Jackson Hole, Wyoming was where both of them felt most at home. So she preferred to take long breaks between projects. And I think she really struggled because E.T. was so big. I think she really struggled with like, well, how do I make, how do I follow that kind of success? Right. Like what can, so she would take long breaks between like generally making really successful projects. All right, so, yeah, in the late 80s, he, they, uh, I don't know, he kept it in the divorce, bought this 800-acre ranch up in Wyoming around Jackson Hole, and they apparently became really well integrated into the community there, in spite of putting their two kids, a son who was born in 87 and a daughter born in 90, into school in New York City. So I guess they spent summers there, holidays, maybe. Okay. Famously, Harrison Ford is a small aircraft pilot, so the to and from of like L.A. or New York to Jackson Hole isn't that big a deal for him. <laughs> really? Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into the crashiness of his. <laughs> Welcome to our new podcast, Crashy Woo! Divorces. <laughs> I like crashy divorces. I like. I like. Come on, all you pilots. Send us your stories. No, I'm kidding. All right. So. Harrison was kind of able to have it all. He had private time with his family in a, you know, natural rural setting, as well as spending the 1990s working on hugely successful projects like Jack Ryan and Tom Clancy's Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger and starring in The Fugitive and Air Force One. Like, it was a good run for him. Oh, the 90s were a pretty... 
Good time. And he's pulling 20 plus million per film at that point. Yes, just amazing. So one assumes that most of the parenting fell on Melissa, who still was able to turn out screenplays throughout the decade, including 1995's The Indian in the Cupboard and 1997's Kundun, which led to a lifelong friendship with the Dalai Lama. Really? Mm -hmm. As well as activism by both her and Harrison in the uh, like Freedom for Tibet movement. Holy cats. Which I feel like has really subsided since the 90s. Like that was just a, I feel like that was in the news a lot in the 90s and not so much now. I will say again, problematically, towards the end of the 1990s, it appears that Harrison Ford, then well into his 50s, went into a full midlife crisis. Oh, no. Yeah, there were tabloid accounts of him cozying up to actress Laura Flynn Boyle. No. Both denied anything improper, but you know tabloids. And late in the fall of 2000, he moved out of the Manhattan apartment that the family lived in during the school year. Other accounts had him frequenting a Lincoln, Nebraska strip club when he had stopovers there to refuel. Oh, my. Which will forever change the way I think of the term refueling stops. (laughs) (laughs) bad so splitting up was not a quick process for these two and it doesn't sound like it was done capriciously people magazine documents the whole thing from their separation to their may 2001 reconciliation complete with quotes from neighbors in jackson hole who were devastated by their breakup and super relieved to see them back together to Melissa's filing for formal separation in Los Angeles in August of 2001 wow seeking joint custody of the kids Spokespeople said it was all amicable, which is what spokespeople are paid to say. But, I mean, the truth is, if it was otherwise, neither of them ever told us. It's a pile of shit, y'all. I can't even tell you. It's bad. It's trashy. (laughs) So later, people would talk to, quote, one longtime Jackson Hole resident who speculated that Melissa was just kind of tired of putting up with Harrison Ford's crap. Quote, Harrison's moodiness and reclusiveness are well known, the person told them. Melissa is even tempered enough to handle it to a point. Frankly, I think many women who aren't as sweet as she is might have left him long ago. You think she and Carrie Fisher got together in corners at parties and... (laughs) No idea. Shared tips. Uh, Another is quoted as saying, Everybody liked them. It seems very sad because it looks to me like they had a wonderful life together. Well, like, yeah, they were super rich, owned a bunch of airplanes and helicopters, this giant ranch. They had Hollywood stardom. Hell, Melissa had developed a really clear visual concept of the E.T. character from the movie. And the screenplay was written to conform with, like, the light, bright finger and the telescoping neck. And through an arbitration process, she ended up getting 4 to 5% of all E.T. merchandise back in the 80s. Like, Whoa! Yeah, I bet things were pretty wonderful. Right up until they weren't. Yeah. So after a few years of negotiation, this divorce was not finalized until 2004. There was reportedly a payout of something like 85 to $90 million to Melissa, which was then the second or third highest divorce, uh, Hollywood divorce settlement in history. Like Spielberg gave Amy Irving $100 million. Is that the phrasing for that? Amy Irving... (laughs) Walked away with a hundred million. I don't know who misbehaved in that one, so don't know. Anyway, oh, Steven Spielberg is on the list. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that's a big one. Anyway, so again, Harrison had routinely been pulling in twenty plus million per film, like throughout the nineties. And I'm pretty sure, as a community property state, Melissa might even have walked away kind of light on what she was like technically entitled to, but. What it looks like is that they worked together to reach a settlement they both could live with, and he kept the ranch and his airplanes. She got a cut of royalties for some of his hit movies. There was a collection of 19th century fine art. There's a $6 million Connecticut estate. There's a $3.5 million New York City apartment. There was a lot of stuff. A lot of cash. A lot of stuff. By the time the settlement was finalized, Harrison had moved on. In fact, he'd moved on about 15 minutes after she filed for separation. Like, Oh, no. Yeah, she filed for separation in August of 2001, which meant that after she filed for separation in August of 2001, which meant that after six months as a California resident, she could file for divorce there. But in January of 2002, definitely within the six-month window, 
Harrison met actress Callista Flockhart. She's a Scorpio, November 11, 1964. Oh, that's a much better combo. Is it? Cancer yeah, Scorpio? Yeah, Cancer Scorpio. There yeah, you go. yeah, yeah. So she, she's 22 years younger, but she also seems to have a similar ambivalence about fame to him. So they dated for years before they became engaged in 09, married in 2010, and they're like 18 plus years into their relationship now. So it does look like this one has stuck. Uh, she had an adoptive son, like at the time they met. And so Liam has known Harrison as his dad basically his whole life. Oh, wow. There is the weirdness of when this kid was 15, like when her adoptive son was 15, like he had siblings who were pushing 50. <laughs> like that's their half siblings. So that's got to be a little interesting. Blended family structures. They're when, a thing. And yeah, Callista Flockhart, similarly to Melissa Matheson, like she isn't that interested in... Like her goal isn't she to be super private, right? Yeah, she's very private and she's not interested in being a super celebrity. So like she'll take roles that interest her that are like shooting in LA. Like that's she has very she has good boundaries, basically. And so she works sometimes and sometimes she's just a mom and that's the life. Like it's not bad. I mean it helps to have eleven billion dollars or whatever, but it's not bad. Melissa Matheson never remarried, but honestly, I think that may just have been a choice to avoid the hassle. (laughs) Sure. She was very wealthy. She was professionally successful. She continued to work. She had great kids. Her final screenplay, the Spielberg-produced Roald Dahl adaptation of the BFG, was released in May of 2016, about seven months after her death from neuroendocrine cancer. Mm. The film was dedicated to her and was nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Writing. Okay, I have to jump in because I am the daughter of a small aircraft pilot. No, this is the crashy divorces part. This is the crashy divorces part. Okay, I would like to take a minute to talk about Harrison Ford, Menace of the Skies. (laughs) So as noted, he got into flying in the 60s and he's licensed to fly and owns helicopters and fixed wing small planes. On the plus side, he has helped out with several search and rescue operations in Wyoming. Oh, that's great. Hikers get lost. A Boy Scout went missing one time. Like, he goes out and rescues people. It's awesome. Amazing. (laughs) Okay. Does lots of personal flying between his properties, obviously. But he is kind of notoriously accident prone. And that is true in the skies as well. So I give you a short and possibly incomplete history of Harrison Ford's airplane mishaps and some consideration of how lucky he is to be alive after pick one. Oh, my. 1999, while on a training flight with an instructor in a Bell 206 helicopter, he botched whatever maneuver he was supposed to be executing, landed hard and fast on a dry riverbed in California, and so the helicopter skidded along until one skid caught, uh, like, a big log in the oh, riverbed. Oh, no. Flipping the helicopter on its side. Luckily, neither person inside was hurt, but the helicopter obviously was hurt. Was hurt. Oh. 2000. His Beechcraft Bonanza plane caught some wind while landing in Lincoln, Nebraska for one of those refueling stops. stops. Yeah, good time. Uh, and it was blown off the runway. No one was hurt. But my dad had a very similar incident not too long after this that caused him to overshoot a runway and end up nose first in a wide ditch at the end. Whoa. They say there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. And my dad's flying tapered off significantly after that. In 2015, Harrison was flying a World War II replica airplane over Santa Monica when the engine failed. Oh, no. To get back to the airport he was flying in and out of that day would mean a risky glide over densely built up areas. So instead he took aim at a golf course, crashed hard, I think, into a tree. I mean, I laugh. I laugh because he survived, but he... Howard Hughes did that same thing, I think. Did he really? Yeah. Yeah. So he ended up with a broken pelvis, broken ankle, face, oh, facial no. lacer- Like he, That was a bad crash. Bad crash. Mm-hmm. Didn't stop him. There is no... He is not an earthbound misfit. He is really trying to make that adage come true that he can be old and bold. <laughs> Twenty seventeen, big dreams, big, big dreams. dreams, big dreams. Twenty seventeen, he landed on the taxiway at LA's John Wayne Airport rather than a runway. You know oh. the taxiway where the yeah, 
nearly colliding with a Boeing 737 passenger jet. Oh my god. And finally, this April, he misheard tower instructions while on the ground and crossed a runway where another aircraft was getting ready to land. Oh my god. So apparently with that one, there was no danger of collision and like he genuinely just misheard what they told him and um, he's apologized profusely and all that, but... I don't know, man. <laughs> Might be time to hang up those wings. I don't know. I mean, once you get used to, you know, flying the Millennium Falcon, I, I think believe you would think you're fearless. I think that's the problem. I do. Flew the Millennium <laughs> Falcon. Now he just can't stop. Harrison Ford is so injury prone that there's a 2015 cracked article called Four Signs Harrison Ford is a Blind Guy Acting Like He Can See. Oh, no. By Christy Harrison and David Christopher Bell, which is a short and funny and very real read. Oh, my. You can find that in our references list at trashydivorces.com. Trash cans. I don't know. Harrison clearly has a complicated history with women, but... As the guy who uttered the famous and famously off-base line that he, quote, made the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs, and honestly, there was no need for Harrison Ford to know that a parsec is a unit of distance, not time, I give Harrison Ford just one trash can that spans 12 parsecs. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) And that is that. Again, just private people are hard to work with on this podcast. So celebrities... If you could open up a bit more in the press. You can email us at trashydivorces at gmail.com. Well done. Thank you. Let's take a quick break. Let's take a break. Hear a word from our sponsor We're going to be back. I understand yours is front loaded with trash, so. I ain't saying he's a gold digger. Back in a minute. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. So, Alicia, you have the surprising tale of a Hollywood legend who always managed to fail upwards. Is that correct? (laughs) At least in love. It seemed like a good through line and thread from the Vivian Lee story last week. Mm -hmm. Got some... Great shout-outs to give Kimberly, Sarah C., and Melissa O. Thank you for this recommendation. There's also an excellent resource if you want to get all like a treasure trove of research. There's a website called DearMrGable.com. Rabbit Hole City. If y'all are into Clark Gable, DearMrGable.com is where you want to go. You ready? Take a breath. I don't know. You I, said this is very trashy, so. Clark Gable. Aquarius man, and wowza, a life. A lot of wives, a lot of living, a lot of drinking, a lot of women who were not his wives, too. Oh, an illegitimate child, a tragic widowhood. Get out your bingo cards for the soon-to-be-inducted Trashy Divorces All-Star. Clark Abel. February 1st, he's an Ohio boy. Clark's dad is in the oil industry, and Clark is baptized in the Catholic Church. And sadly, his mom dies before Clark is even a year Hmm. old. Dad's going to remarry. Stepmom is going to become new mom. Clark's going to learn piano and brass instruments and languages from his stepmom. So dad wants to ensure that that the masculine things are also implanted. Oh, sure. All that 
within his fine strapping son. All that thinking and learning and musicking and oh, oh, yeah. we're going to do some hunting and yep. some fishing too. But dad will fall on some financial troubles and off the family goes to another Ohio town. Because dad is going to leave the oil business and go into farming thinking, hey, I have this like strapping teenage son and certainly he'll help me on the farm. And Clark's like, nah, dad, I'm out. At 17, he takes this job up in Akron, the big city. See ya, pops. So Clark, working in the big city, getting to actually see theater, right? And there's this production of a play called The Bird of Paradise. And Clark goes and he's like, of course, I'm going to be an actor. So the bug that bit him was, in fact, a plant. (laughs) (laughs) Clark's stepmom is going to die. In so doing, leaves Clark a little cash. So Clark is going to go ahead and do his own little king of the road journey across the country. Just travels across doing various jobs as he attempts to break into acting as he's making his way out to Hollywood. So a fun little Gone with the Wind spider web here. Clark is going to encounter one of his future co-stars, Laura Hope Cruz, who plays Pity Pat Hamilton in Gone with the Wind. Clark runs into her. He's working as a logger in Portland. And Laura Hope Cruz is like, you're a fine specimen of a man and you definitely need to be an actor. Here, call my guy. And Clark does. And we'll move on to his next gig and also meet wife number one. Her name is Josephine Dillon. She's another Aquarius. She's born August 26th, 1884. There is a 17-year age difference between she and Clark. Josephine is called Joe by her friends and family. Joe's one of six kids. Her family moves to sunny California at the turn of the century. Joe actually doesn't just attend Stanford University, but graduates from Stanford University in 1908, which is rare for a girl to do at that time. Like just getting admitted is a big deal. Right. To finish and graduate, bigger deal. Joe wants to be an actress, but is told, sorry, you're just not star material. So she is going to turn to drama coaching instead. She'll go to Europe. She studies teaching there, comes back to the States, eventually heading to Portland to open a school for actors. And loggers. Which is where logger Clark Gable <laughs> lands in Wowza. Uh, Joe will say, quote, Clark Gable had the furrowed forehead of a man who was overworked and undernourished. He had the straight-lipped set mouth of the do-it-or-die character. He had the narrow slit-eyed expression of the man who has who has had to fight things through alone and who tells nothing. Joe's going to tell Clark plenty and does a whole lot for Clark. She feeds him to start with because he's starving. Like he's super thin, so she's adding some weight to him. She's a drama coach. She trains him on how to talk, how to stand. His voice register is very high, so she teaches him how to lower his voice. She begins the Clark Gable that we all know and lust for. Like, that image started with Joe's careful guidance to let me train you how to do this. In the mid-1920s, they decide that he is buffed up enough to uh, try things in Hollywood. And the only way that they can go together is if they get married... So they do. December 13th, 1924. Clark is 23. Joe is 41. (laughs) Wow. Okay. At a party for the celebration of the couple, Clark will dance all night with another lady. So really good indication just from the kickoff that this marriage is going to be great. Off to a good start. They're broke, but they are both working to make Clark a star. And Joe has connections, so she's getting Clark big parts and Clark will continue to step out with mostly like all of his co-stars. He's can't stop, won't stop. And Joe's a little jealous. Clark is going to get this part in a stock theater in Houston. And Joe will come to his performances, sit in the front row. And she's super jealous and possessive, holding on to her man. Clark's kind of a jerk. He Joe is eventually turned away one night at the door on his command at one of their performances. Because he has other plans, doesn't want. 
He tells the pseudo wifey. Yeah, he tells the ticket tape like, "Don't let her in." Oh my God. She's, I'm done. Run, Joe, run. Well, after this, Joe says that he calls her and says, "I'm done with you. Whoa, stay out of my life." And both Clark Gable and Joe say the marriage was never consummated, but Joe is gaga about Clark Gable. She is going to continue to carry that Clark torch forever burning strong inside of her heart. But alas, Clark's raging libido has turned onto a new lady love. This is future wife number two. Her name is Maria Langham. So Maria Langham, Rhea, as she is known to her friends and family, is a super wealthy socialite. And Rhea can do way more for Clark than Joe can. Rhea pays to have his teeth fixed, duds him up in some fancy new clothes, introduces him to a much richer and fancier set of people. And Rhea is insisting on marriage. And Clark is like, Joe, I'm going to need you to uh, head on over to Nevada, get us a quickie divorce. I found a richer pot of gold that is not you. So if you could make that happen quick, that'd be great. Thank you for your contributions to the formation of Clark Gable. If you could just go take yourself out of the picture, please, that would be nice. Yeah, Joe's not going to do that. Joe's like, no, I think I'm going to go ahead and do it here in California. Because in California, it's going to make you wait a year before you can get married again. Hmm. So Joe is going to get her revenge payoff that way. The divorce is finally final, April 1st, 1930. Now, a little fun spiderweb here. Joe is kind of broke. Clark Gable has not really provided anything. And Joe is going to go to Louis B. Mayer. Hey, Louis B. I'm broke. I'm going to need you to help me out. Because if you don't help me out, the only alternative I have is to sell my very, very sad story to Mm. the papers. And I mean, Clark Gable... It's 1930. Like, he's your fastest rising star. It would be a shame. It would be a shame if I took that very bankable property away from you. Louis B., kind of an awesome move here, will begin secretly docking Clark's checks by $200 a month. Wow. And sending that money on to Josephine. Clark Gable, when he finds out, is pissed. He's mad about it. This will not be the only time that Louis B. Mayer will pull out his checkbook on account of Clark's penis. Wait on it. So Joe will be a broke drama coach for the rest of her life. She, <laughs> Joe, writes a manuscript with characters named Mark and Julia. Mm-hmm. Which isn't fooling, right? Anybody. Really? Yeah. She's kind of resentful. She's bitter about it all. She will say, the marriage was not fun to watch and not fun to live through. But the one nice thing that Clark Gable actually does here... Josephine will live rent-free in a home that he owns for the rest of her life. He will leave that house to Josephine in his will. There are no other provisions like that for any of his wives. Hmm. Well, the rest of his wives are loaded. So there's no need to make that kind of provision. But there is a modicum amount of providing that Clark does for Josephine. Josephine will live in that home. Until she passes away of pneumonia in November of 1971 at the well-lived age of 87. Hmm. So let's back up the bus a minute. 1930. Clark is really breaking through in film. And saying he's a gold digger. He really wants to gold dig. Sorry, marry. He really wants to marry wife number two, Maria Langham. Let's talk about her. Clark really digs those 1884 babies. Maria Langham born the same year as his wife that he just divorced, is a Capricorn. January 17th is her birthday, born in Kentucky. So he really is just trading up cash-wise. He's not going for a younger model. He He's just a gigolo. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So Maria, Rhea, born in Kentucky, raised in Illinois. She's going to get married for the first time at the tender age of 17. She's divorced four years later. Rhea comes back home to care for her ailing father, where Rhea will meet her husband, number two, a widower. He was 22 years older than she is. Also, he is rich with brick money. He has made a fortune in bricks. 
Those were the days. What do you make? Well, had a lot of dirt, had a lot of water, make bricks. bricks. <laughs> Maria has two kids with this husband. Hubby number two will die, and when he does, he leaves Maria loaded. She is one of Houston's wealthiest citizens. I got brick money. Brick money. Okay. Maria will marry one more time in Texas, which is an enormous mistake. That one doesn't even go two years. Maria takes the kids, heads to New York City. Now, before she moved to New York City, back in Houston, Maria has seen the fine specimen of a man that Clark Gable is. And maybe has been kind of like, wowza, um, what, you're in New York City too? Because that's where Clark is. And Maria's half-brother is an actor, and he'll get Rhea backstage, and she is smitten kitten. I must have him. I have the money to make it happen. So here's where the teeth fixing and the better clothes and the fancy friends and all that come in. Clark heads back to Hollywood. Rhea is hot on his heels, and his career is taking off. He's hot, but he's kind of a gigolo. He's also married. Okay. (laughs) Women find Clark Gable irresistible. He and Joe are busted up, so Clark is now actually living with Maria? Because he doesn't have a home. Joe has that home, right? But even though they're living together, Clark is not coming home to Maria at night. Interesting. What is Clark Gable up to? Fucking Anybody else but her. Okay. Had a feeling he didn't have a night job. <laughs> Taking night classes. On the night shift. I'm learning Java. I'm learning how to make bricks. My spare nighttime time. <laughs> so the divorce from Joe does happen. And even after that year-long waiting period, because it was filed in California, he has not put a ring on it. So Rhea... As opposed to accepting gracefully what may not be meant to be hers, Rhea has another plan. And Rhea is going to take matters into her own hands, march on down to MGM, and goes to the head of PR, dude named Howard Strickling. She's like, Howard, oh, there are tears. So many tears. And Mr. Strickling We've been living together for years, and Clark promised he would marry me, and now he won't. I'm just so sad and so helpless that my only recourse would be to go to the papers and fan magazines and just tell them everything about my poor, poor little broken heart. Look, Howie. (laughs) Well, Howie's like, you're right, little lady. So Howard goes to Irving Thalberg, who's like, yeah, there's totally a morality clause here, buddy, in that contract that you got. And living with a woman who is not your wife kind of busts you on that morality clause thing. So you can marry her and have your fancy career or not marry her and go back to Akron, city boy. Clark and Rhea married June 19, really? 1931. Shocking. Happy ever after, right? Sure. Ha. <laughs> nope. Clark is not... Because he was certainly wasn't before. He certainly marriage is not going to change him into the oh, dutiful husband. Clearly type. not. But Clark and Rhea like make a great show of it on the outside. But inside their Beverly Hills home, they are sleeping in separate bedrooms that are on opposite ends of the house. And once they're done going out at night to the fancy restaurants or their premiere, getting their picture taken, Clark will drop her off at home, and then again go back to his nighttime brick-making job. Mm-hmm. He's going to be a coder. Well, he is coding with Joan Crawford, mm. Elizabeth Allen, Loretta Young, they just all to ha- name a few. They all have computer needs. King of the town, man. Clark is going to win his first Oscar in 1934 mm-hmm. for It Happened One Night. And by this time, Clark no longer needs the money or the cachet that Rhea brings him. So in 1935, he goes to lawyers to officially separate from her and moves into the Beverly Hills Vulture. He's done. Rhea, having none of it. She is pining. He is so going to come back to me. Also, in 1935, there is an illegitimate love child Hmm. that Loretta Young has in the most amazing trick ever played 
on and in Hollywood. We're going to talk about that this week on Patreon. This is Trashy Divorces, trying to stick to the narrative. Clark doesn't want Loretta Young because Clark has actually now fallen in love for the very first time with another actress named Carol Lombard. And here's the thing. Much like Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, when they got together and the press was like, oh, we're rooting for them. The press, the public doing the same thing with Clark and Carol. It's a match for the ages. Now, <laughs> don't forget, just fun spiderweb for you, Clark Gable is still sleeping with Joan Crawford, who is married to Douglas Fairbanks Jr. And Rhea's like, okay, I'm not going to win this one, but I do want a hefty hunk of change for all those years that I supported you, especially now, Clark, since you are the king of Hollywood. And the press is like, we're in for this relationship, but Clark and Carol are living together and it violate the morality clause yeah. again like they're not the only people doing it but oh my god obviously no. <laughs> this is getting stirred up right and so mgm is going to release a statement that clark is asking for a divorce and Rhea is hopping mad because she's been like no he's going to come back to me friends he does not come back hmm. so this is 1938 right and the public has very definite ideas about who should play the role of rep butler in Gone with the Wind. Right. Clark Gable is with MGM, who is run by Louis B. Mayer, who is the father-in-law of David Selznick, who is making Gone with the Wind. Louis B., dude, he's going to find some leverage. It's a little tricky. Clark does not have the money to pay Rhea off. And even though Carol Lombard is loaded with acting money, as well as family money, that's kind of a gauche thing to ask, right? You can't ask your... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So MGM, Louis B., it's like, hey, uh, Clark, here's what's going to happen. I'll totally give you an advance on your contract. We can pay Rhea that half a million dollars that she wants. This is millions in today's money. Oh, yeah. It was an unheard of price at the time. It was... Like, $500,000. But what price? Freedom. Well, it's not freedom, actually. <laughs> uh, because the deal for this is you only get that advance to pay off the current wife you have to marry the new love of your life if you accept the role of Rhett Butler. So he goes unwillingly into... He doesn't... He, he's like, I, this is going to be the worst thing ever. Welcome to your casting for Clark Gable as Rhett Butler and Gone with the Wind. Cool. Rhea actually has to make it part of her clause in the divorce that he will star in the movie. That is like conditionally. Wow. Dude, dirty studio business here. Yeah. But Rhea still has one trick. One last trick up her shrewd sleeve. She's in California and she can make him wait that pesky oh, year. Right. The press rails against her. Rhea is standing in the way of true love and all that jazz. So Rhea will uh, acquiesce. She's going to go to Las Vegas for a quickie divorce, which is granted March 8th, 1939. That hearing lasts a grand total of four minutes. And Maria will say upon leaving, she'll tell the press corps. Clark knew he could have a divorce anytime and he never seemed to want one. I think a marriage between a movie star and a society woman has a better chance of succeeding than one between two stars. So the reason that he couldn't go is that you had to live there for like six weeks or something, right? Yeah. Okay. It's like the hearing is four minutes, but it they, do, they did have some like itty bitty residency mm -hmm. requirement. Okay. I'm surprised the studio didn't just set up like a film shoot in the desert. And have him out there for six weeks and then let him do his do the hearing. I can't wait to tell you about a little Hollywood film called The Women. Uh, We're going to talk about that in, in, in the future. Okay. So, Rhea, a little resentful. A little bit more resentful when Clark Gable and Carol Lombard do get married March 29th. So they waited 21 days. Three weeks. Yeah, that's got a sting. Rhea's going to hang out in Hollywood for a bit. She'll date George Raft, but she has lost much of the shine. Mrs. Clark Gable has a little bit more shine than ex-Mrs. Clark Gable. 
And Rhea's eventually going to go back to Houston pining, just like Josephine, mad, but still pining for Clark the rest of her life. She'll keep all of his clippings and has her own little memory trunk that she'll take out and show her grandkids about her time in Hollywood. I don't know what this This, man does to women. I was going to say, this is upsetting. I do. Once is... Whoa. Okay. Okay. Rhea will pass away in September of 1966 at the age of 82. Okay. Clark and Carol Lombard do get married. And what a love story that is. Come visit us on Patreon for more about that. This is Trashy Divorces. Not happy than tragic marriages. Carol and Clark's story will end in tragedy when Carol is killed in an airplane crash in 1942. Wow. So three years after, they're, it is, we're going to talk about it on Patreon this week. Okay. It's not a divorce. It is a tragic widowhood. Clark is a grieving widower, and he is never really quite the same after that. John Barrymore's wife, Elaine, says this about Clark and Carol. Quote, Clark adored her. She was the light in his eyes. He admitted to me that he had always loved the company of ladies, and he knew that he had a reputation of being a ladies' man, but with her it was different. He was really in love. To have her taken from him was like someone ripped out his soul. I saw him periodically for years afterward. The light in his eyes was gone, even when he smiled. That light never returned, (laughs) unquote. Clark is going to head off to war. He's going to fly actual bombing missions. He is living loose and reckless. Two divorces, one widowhood, one illegitimate child. But we still have two marriages and one more trashy divorce to go. You ready? This one's fun. Let's meet wife number four. Lady Sylvia Ashley, who actually takes a little while before she becomes the lady part of Sylvia. Sylvia is born April 1st in London. 1906 or 1911. No one really knows. She's the daughter of a poor pub keeper. But she's decades younger than his first two wives. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she is. So Carol Lombard was around the same age. Like he really Mm -hmm. did fall for Carol Lombard. There wasn't anything like that was fine. Right. Okay. Sylvia kind of has a crap childhood. She runs away at the age of 15. She becomes a lingerie model. Moves up to Chorus Girl, and here she is going to meet husband number one, Lord Anthony Ashley, the ninth Duke of Shatsbury. <laughs> I can't make it up. Isn't it great? It's perfect. I mean, I may have just made up the way Shatsbury is pronounced, but it's unless, perfect. Unless it's Shitsbury, I don't know. Someone I, from Shatsbury works fine. Shatsbury, let me know. All right, wedding bells are ringing with Lord Ashley and Sylvia in, like, 1927, and things go fine until scandal in 1934. Lord Anthony files for divorce, and he's naming names, and there is a co-respondent in his divorce filing. Can't make it up. Guess who Lady Sylvia is stepping out with? Douglas Fairbanks Sr. Oh, my God. So Mary Pickford's... I guess ex-husband by then or not? No, they're still married. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. So remember, we did a whole episode on Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks back, I think, on Patreon when we did Joan Crawford. But Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks are like the Hollywood golden couple. So were. Were. Past tense. (laughs) Yeah. Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks divorce drags on and Lady Sylvia and Lord Ashley's divorce drags on. Finally, like, takes three years for everybody to finally get divorced. Sylvia and Douglas will get married in 1936. And Sylvia has three years of married bliss with old uh, Dougie Sr., but she will be left a very wealthy widow when Douglas Fairbanks dies in December of 1939 at the age of 56. Not one to be deterred. Lady Sylvia has another brief marriage to, this time, Lord Stanley of Alderley in 1944, but he files for divorce like a year later. Kind of trashy with mud on that one, but we'll... Brick brick dust. Lots of brick dust on that. We'll talk about it okay. on Patreon this week. Needless to say, Sylvia, after this, is free and back on the market by 1948. 
which brings Sylvia to a party in the summer of 1949 where Clark Gable is in attendance. He's brought another date. It's Clark Gable. Ain't saying he's a gold digger. He's brought a socialite named Dolly O'Brien to this party that will ditch Dolly for Sylvia, the other lady at the party, who has more money than Dolly. So now Clark also, God bless, is having a huge fling with this actress named Virginia Gray. They've been together since Carol's death, and everyone thinks, especially Virginia Gray, Mm. that she's going to be the next Mrs. Gable. Sure. And that's not... Well, off Clark goes to the studio, and he goes back and talks to Howie. He's like, hey, guess what, Howie? I'm getting married. And uh, Virginia's an up-and-coming actress, and she's devoted to Clark Gable. And Howie's like, great, okay, you and Virginia, that's awesome. And Clark's like, nah, I'm marrying Lady Sylvia Ashley. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. And it is on December 20th, 1949, that Clark and Sylvia do marry, leaving a broken-hearted Virginia Gray who will never marry after losing the great love of her life. Because she never recovers from... Wow. Mm-mm. Wow. So the wedding does happen with Clark and Sylvia. There's very little fanfare. The couple honeymoons in Hawaii. They plant a palm tree. Things are fine. For the two weeks that they're in Hawaii. After those two glorious weeks, aloha and all that nonsense, they head back to Clark's home. Carol Lombard buys Clark a ranch in Encino in their marriage. And this place, pretty much through their marriage and since her death, has been a homage, a place of worship to Carol's memory. Nothing's changed. Everything's exactly the exact same way it was the day she died. And Sylvia comes in and says, I think we need to redecorate. Mm. So she takes away all the things that Carol did. And Clark at this point is still in love-ish with his ducky doodle. That's what he calls Sylvia. And it is said that Sylvia is wild in the sack. So it goes well enough until it doesn't because Clark is the one that needs to be pampered. In every relationship. And Lady Sylvia is like, uh, nah, I'm off to the salon. I'm buying new clothes. I have a personal maid. I'm living the high life. She will invite her friends with no regard to Clark's privacy to the ranch home for months on end. Oh, come stay for the summer. It's fine. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Not This great. act is going to get pretty stale for Clark. Uh, <laughs> poor Lady Sylvia. Lady Sylvia does also not do the things that Clark wants to do, like hunt and fish. She has too much jewelry. Literally, she will not take off her jewels in the great outdoors. Clark's friends will rename Sylvia her ladyship Hmm. and poke fun of Clark a lot because Clark is carrying around a tiny little terrier with the real diamond collar. Oh, my God. Hmm. Clark Gable, the man carrying around a diamond-collared dog. Like, this image is just fantastic. Sylvia's going to take off to England. When she comes back, she takes a bath. When she's in the bathroom, Clark comes in and says, I want a divorce, and he leaves. She doesn't believe him. She doesn't leave the ranch. She stays there for, like, a number of weeks after this. Clark is not speaking to her. There are two strangers in the home. And finally, it sinks into Sylvia that, yes, in fact... Maybe taking all of Carol's bedroom furniture out and painting that bedroom pink was not the best idea. Yikes. She leaves. Clark is like, fantastic. Anybody who she hired, you're fired. And he immediately begins to undo all of her renovations to the ranch. The divorce is final for these two. April of 1952. Clark will, of course, tell reporters that She's a good woman, and I'm just so sorry it didn't work out. And privately, he's like, I was so drunk when I proposed. Why did I do such a stupid thing? Oh, God. So Lady Sylvia is going to go on to marry one more time. Prince Dimitri Georgiazi, y'all, D-J-O-R-D-J-A-D-Z-E. That's more consonants that belong, like, in any Scrabble word right there. (laughs) Anyway. Prince Dimitri is a Georgian race car driver and hotel developer. They get married in 1954. That's going to fizzle out, but these two never divorce. 
Sylvia will not talk about Clark Gable when he is alive. When asked, she says, my marriage to Douglas Fairbanks was perfect. He was ideal, gay, intelligent, and charming. My other husbands, it would not be dignified to discuss them. After Clark's death, Lady Sylvia will only say, it is a period in my life I do not care to discuss. It was a bad time in my life, and I don't like to talk about it. Seems really reasonable, to be honest. right? Sylvia passes away June 1977 at the age of, we don't really know what, because we don't really know when she was born, but late 60s, early 70s. That is technically the last divorce. We're not done with the story. Clark is going to get married one more time. This time to my birthday twin, an August 7th baby, a lady named Kathleen Williams in her maiden name form. You may recognize Kathleen from one of her married names, Kay Spreckles, who marries Aldolf Spreckles, who is the heir to the Spreckles sugarcane fortune. We've talked about this Palm Beach. Kay Spreckles was the matriarch. We talked about this in a fun with done ages ago. Okay. Spreckles sugarcane money. Whoa. Kay and Aldolf marry in 1945. Oh, God. Palm Beach money, y'all. And... This is after Kay's first two marriages. I don't even know the crashy divorces. There's a high count of divorces in this episode. One of those marriages was to an Argentinian cattle tycoon. Anyway, I may have to add this into Patreon anyway. Okay. Aldolf and Kay have two kids. Weird spider web here. One of those kids, his name is Bunker Spreckles, is a surfer. And he also pioneers this early surfboard design, which is believed to lead to the fish style of board, which is a shorter, stubbier board. I don't get to talk about surfing very often in Trashy Divorces, so why not? Bunker, Spreckles. We have to thank for the fish surfboard. Okay. Okay. By 1953, Kay and Aldolf Spreckles, there's a super contentious divorce happening. It's dirty, dirty business. That's not the divorce we're talking about. The thing is that Kay and Clark dated back in the 1940s when he was dating Virginia Gray. Because Kay Kay was an up-and-coming actress in Hollywood. And maybe Kay's a gold digger, too. Like, Spreckles money, Argentinian cattle tycoon. Okay. But when the marriage to Spreckles fizzles... Clark and Kay will reunite. She's a ringer for Carol Lombard. They fall into the same love routine. She will use the same pet names for him, and he will use the same pet names for Kay that he called Carol. Clark is going to propose to her by the pool one day while she is conveniently pregnant with his child. His first kid. Like, he and Carol wanted kids and weren't, like, she died before. Okay. Kay and Clark marry July 1955, and Clark is stepdad for her two kids, and then Kay tragically miscarries. But there's another pregnancy, when she is 43 and he is 59, and Clark Gable will sadly not meet his son. Mm. Clark Gable dies of a heart attack after filming The Misfits with Marilyn Monroe, written by her soon-to-be-divorced ex-husband, Arthur Miller. Clark passes away. November 6th, 1960, and his long-awaited four child is born in March of 1961. Hmm. Kay will be his widow. She does not remarry. Kay passes away in May of 1983 at the age of 66. And those, my trash pandas, are the trashy divorces of Clark Gable. All three trashy divorces have their own special stench and stank of trash happening. But I'm going to go ahead and wrap up all three in half a million trash cans. The money exchange rate to get out of divorce number two. Yeah, half a million. I'm good with that. <laughs> I'm really, really good with that. I think that's I good. don't know what that converts to in the value of today's trash cans. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it's got to be a lot, though. There's a converter out there somewhere on the internet for it. <laughs> converter for everything. It's Clark Gable. I don't know what... A- I don't know what he did to women. Right. He did something to women, didn't he? We have a lot of stuff to follow up on this week on Patreon. 
We've got the filming and premiere of Gone with the Wind. And I think in the writing of this story, I'm going to have to follow up on the tragic love affair of Clark and Carol Lombard and all of his side pieces to Ladies Love, Clark Gable. Sure. And I want to get to the bottom of that. Okay. Oh, except Vivian Lee. She can't stand him. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There's one lady who does not love him at all. It's okay. Yeah. Even his ex-wives. Mm-hmm. Never get over him. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We can't wait to be back with you next week for more listener-suggested trashy divorces. If you need more trash candy in the meantime, check us out over at patreon.com. Trashy divorces for hundreds of hours of our trashiest stuff. Yep. In the meantime, it's very important to us that you keep your hands clean and your hearts very, very trashy. So, so trashy, y'all. Not as trashy as Clark Gable. No. No. Bless. Bless. (laughs) Bless. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Keep it trashy. Try to get that Kessel run down under 12th parsecs. <laughs> You're so funny. Bye, everybody. We'll Bye, see you y'all. next week. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear want to advertise with us reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information and last but not least come play with us on social media i keep most of our trashy divorces instagram hopping stacy and i share it up over on facebook including our trashy divorces podcast discussion group come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening keep it trashy y'all